Hello, morning everybody. Um, we're going to make a start. Um, uh, welcome to the Breakfast Club. Um, bright and early, well done for coming in, um, getting up in time, etc., etc. And this morning, um, Helen is going to speak to us um, about on the subject of fear of the future. Um, could you, can you come up, Helen? I'm just going to introduce you. Um, Helen works with the London City Mission. Um, she's also an experienced, trained counsellor um, and author of this book, which I can recommend to you because I've actually read it. <laughs> it's really good. Um, and it's called Purity as Possible, uh, How to Live Free of the Fantasy Trap. Um, and that's available by all great booksellers, <laughs> I imagine. It's definitely on Amazon. So, <laughs> um, And that's... Are you ready to go? That's, that's fine. Great. <laughs> um, shall I just pray for you and then we'll, we'll go? Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much um, for your word. Thank you that it's true um, today as it was um, when it was written. And I pray, Lord, that you would um, be with Helen now as she uh, speaks to us um, from your word. And I pray that you would um, speak to each of our hearts about how we can uh, be living uh, free of the fear of the future. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what are you afraid of? What is it that keeps you awake at night? What is it that makes your pulse race just a little bit faster? Maybe it's where you live. Central London is a slightly transitory place. Maybe a job or a relationship or sheer economics could cause a move. What about what you're going to be doing once you finish that course of study, once you finish that internship? What job are you going to have? Is your new job going to pan out? Is your new business going to succeed? Will you have any job at all in the coming years? What about who you'll be with? Will you have that new partner that you're longing for? Will your marriage be better than it is right now? How about your friends? Will you still be in touch or will they be many, many miles away? Maybe it's none of those things. Maybe it's your health that causes you some worries. Maybe it's weighing heavily on your mind. Maybe someone you love is going through a difficult time. Will they get better? Will it all be okay? Maybe you have one of those fears of the future that you don't really want to admit to in public. Uh, like me. Uh, I, it didn't even cross my mind till about five years ago, but as I started getting greyer and realised I didn't have a husband or any children, it suddenly started worrying me who was going to pick my care home when I got older. <laughs> I don't admit that in public very often, you're very privileged. But it's something that weighs on my mind. Maybe it's your emotions that you're fearful about. Maybe you don't like yourself very much now. And you're worried, you're fearful that you'll always feel that bad that things won't actually improve, that you'll always feel a mess inside while everyone else looks so together. Just as an aside, they're probably not. Maybe for a few of us, it's the spiritual matters. Maybe you're quietly drifting away from God and you haven't told a soul. And you're sitting here wondering, in ten years' time, will I still be in church? Will I still be going strong with Jesus, or will I have wandered away? Maybe it's none of the above. Maybe it's something completely different for you. Maybe it's all of the above. And maybe on top of that, you're very fearful about the fact that you're being fearful. 
There seems to be a pressure inside Christian circles sometimes to be a super Christian, to go through life confident in the Lord, never wavering for a moment. If you're anything like me, that doesn't happen. Well, when you think about it, there's quite a lot to be afraid of. Uh, so good call, B and Katie, for having a morning on fear of the future, because there really is quite a list. But the question is, how should we deal with that fear? Should we just ignore it? Shall we just pop it in a little box somewhere in our life and, and leave it unaddressed? Maybe we should become stoic, feel the fear and do it anyway. Just push on through life and not worry about our emotions too much. Maybe we should just stop it. You ever tried? Just stop being fearful. Uh, I, you know, I love it when people say, you've got nothing to worry about, just don't. <laughs> Have you ever tried? Just not. It really doesn't work. So maybe a more important question is, how does God treat his fearful children? And what has he got to say about our fears this morning, right here, right now? Well, we're going to spend the next 25 minutes or so looking at that question, and we're going to be doing it from a passage in Exodus. It may not be the first passage you think of uh, when you think about fear of the future, but I'm hoping there's some things in there that are really going to help us tease out what God says to his fearful people. We're going to read it in chunks, but before we do that, uh, let me sketch in the story so far. God's chosen people had been slaves for around 400 years-ish. And it was a terrible time in their history, a time of huge suffering and utter torment. Uh, but God had not forgotten them. He'd remembered that he'd made a promise with their ancestor Abraham, a promise that one day their descendants would live in a land uh, where they would be blessed and they would bless others. And so he enacted a plan to release his people from slavery. He, he called Moses in the burning bush and called them, him to lead the people. He sent the ten plagues, uh, the last of which was the Passover. And then the people were led out through the sea towards the promised land. So this is God's rescued people that we're looking at today. They've seen great wonders in God's uh, life, they've, they, in their lives. They've seen God's power at work. They know what it is to be saved by the creator God and to be chosen to be his people. Should they be scared? Well, they are. And let's take a look at just what that looks at. So Exodus uh, chapter 16 and verses 1 to 3 and B, if you could start us off, that would be great. Sure. So starting at verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month, after they had come out of Egypt... In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around, we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out of this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Well, here we are, approximately one month after the Israelites have left Egypt. So it's less than five weeks since they've seen the Passover, escaped their captors, seen the sea parted before their eyes, watched the powerful Egyptian army getting smited, and for good measure have watched bitter water being turned into sweet water by Moses obeying God's command to throw a stick in. Now you might think that those things would have made a bit of an impression. But how are the Israelites doing? 
It was so much better when we were slaves. Back then, we had a home. We were in Egypt. We had a place to be. Back then, we had food. We had loads to eat. It was like a banquet. There was, there was food everywhere. Back then, we had lice. Now, now we don't have a home. Now we don't have food. Now we're about to die. There's real panic in their voices as they look to the future. They feel suddenly that everything is out of control. They're grumbling and they're scared. And more than anything else, they wish they could turn the clock back and go and be slaves again. Now you might notice a slight flaw in their logic at this point. Being a slave is no bed of roses. When in Egypt, food was not plentiful. When in Egypt, life was not easier. They were worked to death. They were whipped viciously. And their children were murdered before their eyes. But fear does that, doesn't it? Fear does that to people. It says, it was better before. I don't want to go on. I I know I'm being called into the future, but I'd rather go back. Fear helps us forget, makes us forget, maybe, what's gone in the past. But it's not just the past they were forgetting. They're forgetting who is with them in the present. There's no mention of God in that little rant they had. It was all about them. And they're forgetting what's happening in the future. There's no mention of God's promises in that little rant either. It was all about the lack of food. Now, I don't want to be judgmental on the Israelites because, you know what, I wouldn't have fared any better. And I don't fare any better now. When I'm scared, I forget things too. I forget what the past was like. I forget who's with me in the present. I forget what the future's going to be. Just this week, I've spoken to people that feel the same way. Someone whose marriage was on the rocks, and they said, it's so much better when I was single. Turn the clock back. They hated being single. I remember it well. Someone who just this week saying, the money's run out. No one's looking after me. They forget that God and the church are pouring in so much generosity into their lives right now. Someone who's just been diagnosed with a a very serious health condition. My future's bleak. Nothing can go right. I don't want to go forward there. They forget that for a Christian, there's no such thing as an unhappy or an unhealthy ending. I mean, there can be some bumps along the way. There can be very painful moments. But the new creation is coming. There'll be perfect health there. Eternal life. Yes, the Israelites in our passage and us today, we are forgetful people. When we get scared, we forget what's gone past, who's with us now and what's going to happen in the future. But God knows. He knows how forgetful we are. And so in the passage to come, he shares some wonderful truths. So let's look at what some of those are. Carrying on from verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather, gather enough for the day. In this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, we are to prepare, they are to prepare what they bring in. That is, uh, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, 
In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in a cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, At twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Well, I suppose there are many things God could have said at this point. He could have focused on the food. He could have said, I know you're hungry. Let me go down to the first century, well, no, no, pre-first century, isn't it? Equivalent of McDonald's and and, and buy you a little happy meal. You know, I'll just give you something to tide you over, to, to make you smile. That's not what God did. It's not what God said. He makes them a promise. He reminds them of a truth, which is very simply this. I am with you. I am with you. You're not in this journey alone. We see in the title that the passage uses for God, Lord, the L-O-R-D in capital letters. It's a title loaded with meaning. This is the covenant God. The God of the ancestors. The God who is committed and faithful. The God who has promised that they will reach the promised land. That they will be blessed. That one day the whole world will be blessed through them. This is a God who is intimately involved in their lives, who has chosen them to be his people. He's not going to go anywhere. He is not the kind of God that makes a promise and then wanders off. Actually, no, I've changed my mind. You're a little bit too much of a stress. I can't be bothered with you. I'm going to go off and choose a different nation instead. That's not the God we see in the Bible. He doesn't get fed up with grumbling. He doesn't get fed up with moaning. I mean, I'm sure he would like it to change. That's why he changes our hearts. But he doesn't run away. And he didn't run away from the Israelites. And so he had a conversation with Moses. And he promises to provide them with food. But not just so that they can fill their bellies. Just as we've seen that the people were forgetting the past, the present and the future. So when God uses his promise of food... It's to help them to remember that he's with them in the past, the present, and the future. Look again at uh, verses 4 to 7, if you will. At a cursory glance, it does look just like God saying, there'll be meat and bread. But dig a little deeper, and it's far more than that. He's saying there'll be promises of bread in the morning, so that they can remember he is with them now. There's promises of meat in the evening, so that they can remember God was with them when they were first saved from Egypt. There'll be double portion on Fridays, the day before the Sabbath, so that they can remember that God is with them in the coming day as well. It's not just food. It's not just filling their bellies. It's not just meeting their immediate need to help them calm down a little bit. He's promising them manna and meat to say, I was with you. 
I am with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm not going anywhere. But he didn't just say that to Moses. I guess he, he knows human beings well enough. He, he knows that if you give a message to a church leader, it, it doesn't always get believed by the congregation. And, and so he gets passed on to the people as well. He says, gather the people together. And he appears in this cloud, this wonderful cloud, so everyone can see very visibly, very tangibly, God is with them. He hasn't gone. He hasn't rescued them from Egypt, brought them out into a desert and left them there to die by themselves. He's there. He's there with them, still leading, still being faithful to his promises. Do you know that promise holds firm for us too? Oh, I'm not expecting a cloud anytime soon. But we haven't got the old covenant, we've got the new. Jesus died and rose again for us. If we're following him, his spirit is inside us. He is with us. Whatever we're scared of for the future, he's not going anywhere. And just like the God we see in the Old Testament didn't wander off when the Israelites started moaning, the God who is living in us is not going to leave us when we do our headless chicken routine. Do you ever think he might? Do you ever think he gets so fed up with us he's going to wander off and find someone else to sanctify? For goodness sake, I just cannot cope with this woman any longer. She grumbles, she doubts, she panics, she thinks badly of me, she thinks badly of herself. I know she looks quite good on the outside, but on the inside, quite frankly, she's a mess. I'm off. I don't want to be her God anymore. Sounds crazy when you say it out loud, doesn't it? But inside our heads, we can almost believe it. Now, whatever your fear is, whatever you're going through right now, God is with you. God is with you, and he is not going away. The first great truth that God reminds us from this passage. But does it make any practical difference having God with us? I remember once being lost on a mountain and two people said to me in that horrible night where I was stuck in a big storm, uh, huddling behind a rock, two people said, don't worry, Helen, I am with you. One of them was a 14-year-old girl with a broken leg. (laughs) This brought me no comfort whatsoever. If anything, I was going to have to carry her down the mountainside the next day, and I didn't think I was up to it. Her being with me was a pain in the neck, quite frankly. The second person who said to me, Helen, I am with you, don't worry, was Mountain Rescue. That made so much of a difference. Having them, and their very cute dog, with me, uh, was absolutely delightful. Not only because it re- I was rescued, it meant I didn't have to carry the 14-year-old girl with a broken leg down the mountain. It was absolutely wonderful. So which is God? God with us. Is he the 14-year-old girl with a broken leg, or is he mountain rescue? Well, I know you know the answer. Uh, we're going to look at the next bit of the passage to dig a little deeper. So from verse 13, that evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. 
The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Well, God made a promise. He made a promise to provide for his people. And unsurprisingly, he kept that promise. The meat and the bread, it appeared. Now, he didn't give them everything they might want, but he certainly gave them everything they needed. If you look back to verses 1 to 3, that the Israelites had in mind great banquets of food. They wanted overflowing meat. I would guess a great choice. I imagine they wanted more than just bread. You know, vegetables might have been nice. But he gave them what they needed. He gave them quail and he gave them manna. Now, quail is not an exciting food. At least not, it wasn't an exciting food back in the Sinai Desert. Might be a little bit of a delicacy in Waitrose now. Uh, but back then, over the Sinai Desert, this was the route for quails migrating. Uh, so they were going from Africa to Arabia and they'd go over the desert. And this was the point that they were really tired. So this wasn't a nice Waitrose ready meal with a nice jus on the side. This was a small, exhausted bird uh, dropping from the sky. It doesn't sound quite as appealing. But for God to have made that happen at just the right time, that's quite a miracle. That is God's provision in quite extraordinary ways. Uh, The manna equally, well, something similar exists in that part of the world now. We don't quite know if it's the same thing or not, but there is a sort of a dew, a a kind of a liquid that you can gather up uh, in, in a pot and strain it, and it tastes like a honey dough. I've never tasted it myself, but it sounds absolutely delightful. I'm a big fan of honey. A sweet kind of bread. Now, for 40 years uh, every day, that probably got slightly dull. But it is what they needed. It is exactly what they needed to be able to persevere through their journey. It wasn't exciting. It wasn't a banquet. It wasn't something that uh, would have brought joy to their hearts every single day. But it was God's good provision. It was exactly what he knew they needed. I am with you, says God, and I will provide for you. Not necessarily in the ways you expect. I don't think if I'd been an Israelite, I'd be expecting dew to come on the grass or a quail to fall out of the sky. And certainly while I was walking down Chester Square earlier this morning, I didn't even think to look at the square itself and the grass and see if there were any quails or bread there waiting for me to have breakfast. It's not the way God generally works. But it was what they needed right then. It was how God chose to provide for them. And I guess that principle of God giving us what we need, though not necessarily what we want, holds true for us too. He is with us and he knows us. He knows us intimately. Other parts of the Bible tell us that. He knitted us together in our mother's womb. He knows how many hairs are on our head. He knows the innermost thoughts of our hearts. He he knows us deeply. Nothing is hidden from him. He knows what we want. But because he knows us so well, because he loves us so much, he gives us what we need. Sometimes as a human being, I have a hissy fit at that point. I don't want what's best for me. I want what I want. Sometimes I can regress into toddler mode. 
I don't want the nice chicken and vegetables. I want the Haribo, and I want all 17 packets, and I want them now. We can do that so easily, can't we? The gift of singleness? No, thank you. What's the returns policy on that? The gift of being disabled? Well, no. I want to be fit and healthy, thank you. The gift of poverty? No, I want a nice house in London. God doesn't always give us what we want. But he does give us what we need because his highest aim for us, like it was for the Israelites, is not to make us deliriously happy in our own self-centeredness. It's to make us into his people, his people who reflect his image more and more. It's what the New Testament calls being conformed to the likeness of Christ. He gives us what we need to be holy. And yes, there'll be some happy times along the way. He's not a killjoy. But his highest aim for us is to be holy, to be like Jesus. And he gives us what we need for that. And when we see that plan, when we go along with that plan, the future isn't so scary. We can be sure that God's not throwing us a curveball. He's not deliberately depriving us from something we desperately need. He's not that kind of God. He's giving us exactly what we need. Using the good things of the earth, as well as the broken things of the earth, to make us into the people we're called to be. Two wonderful truths. I am with you, and I will provide for you. Well, let's just check back in with the Israelites and see how they're responding to those wonderful truths. So now at verse uh, uh, 19. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as he needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is the the Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Oh, the Israelites are gloriously stupid, aren't they? They're almost as gloriously stupid as I am. They still don't quite get it. They've seen all these wonderful works of the Lord. They've had the wonderful promise that God is with them, the wonderful promise that God will provide. And they get a very simple plan, which is Monday to Friday, Sunday to Friday, go out and collect food, Saturday rest. It's not that complicated. But can they get it right? 
Absolutely not. They've still got to go out on Saturday. They've got to panic. There might not be enough food. What if it doesn't last? It's not going to be okay. I know he said he's with me. I know he said he'll provide. But you never know. It could all go horribly pear-shaped. I've got to work. I've got to try harder. I've got to make this better. Do you ever find yourself doing that? You know God's in charge. You know he's going to provide. And yet you run around like a headless chicken, assuming that you are in control and you've got to make everything right. Yes, you remember that bit somewhere in Matthew where it talks about lilies and sparrows and it says it's going to be all okay because God loves you more than that. But still, you have to try and take control. Maybe rather than just working hard, you work crazy hours just to make sure. Maybe rather than just taking good care of yourself, you spend two hours at the gym every day. Maybe rather than having a good quiet time and enjoying the Lord, you go overboard with religious rituals and making sure you come to everything so God will accept you. We add works in. We don't like just relying on God. But God has something to say to that. Our next three verses of the reading. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. It's a very simple plan. God says, I will give you what you need for today. I'll give you what you need right now. Don't don't worry about next year. You don't know what's going to happen next year. I do. So you don't know what you need. Just, Just trust me for today. For the Israelites, he was saying, just go and pick up the bread you need for today and then come home. And then tomorrow, just go out, pick up the bread you need for today, then come home. When I ask you to collect bread, collect bread. When I ask you to rest, rest. It's what Jesus later on described as asking God for our daily bread. The principle is quite simple. He gives us what we need one day at a time. And it's worth remembering that too. Am I going to have everything I need for that job I'm starting in September? Well, yes, in September. Not now. Are you going to have everything you need to cope with being single in your 40s? Well, yes. In your 40s, not, not now. Am I going to have everything I need to cope with my husband uh, when I'm 60? Well, yes, but, but not now. I have a, a big fear of flying. That's, that's my number one thing. I'm going on an easy jet fear of flying course in a couple of months' time. I'm sure it's going to be great. Um, but one of the things that I'm really fearful of is I don't want to be in a plane crash. Because I think if that plane was going down, I would be hugely ungodly. And as someone that spends my time wandering around encouraging people to be godly, I think I'm going to make an utter fool of myself and show myself to be the hypocrite that I am uh, as that plane goes down. And I said to my friend in utter panic one day, I don't think I have got what it takes to be a godly woman when a plane is crashing. And my friend very wisely put her arm around my shoulder and said, Helen, of course you don't. You're not in a plane that's crashing. 
Can we trust God just for today? He knows the future. He knows what you're going to need in a year's time, but he's not going to give it to you yet because you don't need it yet. God doesn't give us grace for the next 12 years all in one block. He gives us grace for today and hope for tomorrow, a confident hope that the grace will come. He says, I am with you. I will provide for you. You can trust me for today. That's what we need. And as we do that, our relationship with God grows. We learn to be ever more intimate with him. And you know, it's a kindness that he doesn't give us grace for the next decade. Because if he'd given me everything I'd needed for the next 10 years, 10 years ago, I would have done a Jonah and run for it. I don't want grace for all the things you were about to ask me to do. I don't want to do any of those, I would have said. He lets us grow slowly. So we can trust him. I am with you. I will provide for you. You can trust me for today. Wonderful words for the future, but he's not quite done. There's just one more thing that he's got left to share. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so that they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna in front of the testimony which, that it might be kept. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a, a land that was settled They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. And Omer is a one-tenth of an ephah. It might seem a little odd way to stop the story. Take a little bit of the food, put it in a jar and stick it before a box. But that's what God asked them to do. And part of that, I guess, is an interesting historical fact. You can tell your grandchildren, this is what grandma ate in the desert. But it's more than that. It's a reminder that what God's giving us now is only temporary because we're not going to need it forever. Just as the Israelites only needed the manna and quail until they got to the promised land, so we only need to be trusting God for our future until we get to eternity. This fear, the uncertainty of life, the brokenness of the world, this is a temporary thing. One day it's going to stop. One day... Each and every one of us here who are following Jesus are going to be in eternity together and not one of us is going to have a single fear. We're going to look forward to the next 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 years with utter confidence because there is nothing to fear. There is no more brokenness. There is no more uncertainty. We can trust God now, knowing that we won't have to have these fears or worries forever. Well, I'm conscious that time is escaping, so let me leave you with just a few thoughts. Think about your biggest fear. I'm sure by now you've got it in your head. Maybe one thing, don't try and tackle too many at once, one thing that you're scared of for the future. What difference does it make to know that God is with you? What difference does it make to know that God will be providing what you need? 
How would it change your experience of fear if you were to start trusting him just one day at a time? How would it change your experience of fear to know it's not always going to be like this? There is a day of perfection to come. Maybe those are things you could chat about on your table now. But let me pray. Father God, thank you uh, so much that you were with the Israelites in the desert. And thank you that you are with each and every one of us here. And Lord, I pray that uh, as we think about what, what scares us most, you'll help us to reflect on your presence and on your provision. You'll call to trust you one day at a time. And the reminder that this is not all there is. One day perfection will come. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us in the midst of that to trust you more. To follow you more closely. To relax into your loving arms, knowing that you will preserve us into the life to come. Amen.